music works wasn't written for musicians. It's not written for the subset of recording artists trying to get an album deal. How music works is written for anybody who loves anything done at a great level and wants to hear about how an artist has made their way. My guest today is Joshua Jay. So Joshua Jay is a magician, author, a lecturer. He has performed in over 100 countries. He's won the top prize in magic. He's done a lot of amazing things. He's been on Good Morning America. He's been on the Today Show. But the most important thing to my mind that he's done, and Joshua, you don't know this. We don't know each other. But there's 162 games of baseball, which leaves the rest of the year to watch Fool Us for my wife and I. So we know you from Fool Us. You were fantastic on the show. You fooled Penn and Teller. Do you have that iconic trophy in your house? I do up in my loft. It's just one of those things that like when you live in New York and you have an apartment that's not enormous, it's a weird thing to like keep trophies and plaques of yourself. So I'm always honored when I occasionally get something like that, but it has to go in the loft where my girlfriend will be like, this is ego stuff here. As an ex-New Yorker and an ex-dweller in a tiny apartment, I totally get that. The book that Joshua J picked today is How Music Works by David Byrne, which if you haven't read it, how would you describe this book? This is what inspired me so much. This was one of the two things that made me want to write. We'll eventually talk about my new book, How Magicians Think. But this book to me was him peeling back the curtain and showing us an industry I know very little about from the perspective of a great artist. Wouldn't you say that's a fair way of putting it? Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. This is an interesting book. I delayed reading it for a little while because I'm not really a Talking Heads fan. I like their music. It's cool, but it's of a different generation for me. And I just never really dug into it. And I like it way more after reading this book because he really is a true artist. When I read this book, one of the things that Byrne tries to expose in his book is how the process of making music is done, which is an interesting thing for me. I'm a musician, which you may or may not know. My day job is writing music, and I am also working on a book about music, and I've been, you know, writing out all these different ideas, and I read this book, and I had this moment where I was like, oh, all the things I've been thinking about are things that I read in this book when I read it two years ago, and I'm trying to riff on them, but David Byrne lays out really everything you need to know about how music works, the title of the book. Yeah. I would agree with you completely. And what I would say to you is I also, I mean, this is sort of the ultimate compliment and it could be construed as a backhanded compliment, but it's not. I am also not a Talking Heads fan. They were a little before my time and I wasn't that familiar with the music other than a couple of hits and so on. But in reading this book, I became a David Byrne and Talking Heads fan because somehow he is better than the sum of all the parts. I mean, he says it himself. I'm not talking out of turn here. He's an awkward dancer. He doesn't have a ton of range in his voice. He's an average player, but you put it all together and he has what so few people have, which is vision and understanding. And I so appreciated his backstage tour of how all of this stuff works. And I love it when people get candid. And that's what I was trying for. And I took from his book that I hope I instilled in my own is you never feel like he's censoring himself. I mean, in particular, the part I thought I almost would skip over for your listeners who don't know, the book is basically like sections and you have how collaboration works, how the music industry, the business part of it works. And he says in the beginning, like, you might want to read it in the way I've written it, but you can also skip around if parts interest you and parts don't. And like, I thought to myself, the business of music doesn't interest me at all. Why should I care about how artists get royalties? But I actually found that part 
most interesting because it does have parallels to other places. And I just loved how candid he was. He would say, look, I was given $220,000 to make the record blah, but I spent 212,000 recording that album. So I made 8,000 bucks. I mean, these are really crazy, honest insights. And I appreciated that. Yeah, I think that part of it to me also stood out because I live in that world. And that's the kind of conversation that I'm sure magicians have conversations backstage that are relevant to the business of magic and which clubs are good to book in. And so that chapter of the book was an affirmation of the kind of stuff that me and my friends all talk about. Because David Byrne, you know, he's two generations older and on a different level than pretty much anyone in the world. And it was great to hear that he has those same problems that I have and the same issues and he's dealing with the same companies and they're treating him the same way. Yeah, he is in a great position because in some aspects, he's a legend, he's an icon, but in other aspects, he's not selling Lady Gaga numbers of records. And that makes him somebody who is very much in the trenches and doing it. I mean, as we speak, he's on Broadway having a huge moment, which is great for him. And I can't wait to see that show. Have you seen it, by the way, American Utopia? I was in New York two weeks ago and my friend had tickets and I missed it by a day. I already regret it. I should have just changed my flight. I know. I'm going to see it. I really want to see it. And it was really fun. I mean, your podcast, which by the way, let me compliment you in front of your listeners. I'm doing a ton of media. You know, you're the third podcast today that I'm recording with because this is what we do the month the book comes out. But your format is by far and away the most interesting one that I've done. It's also the most time consuming because I wanted to be prepared. So I reread How Music Works, which of course is seven, eight hours investment. So this has been quite a time investment to do it, but I was so happy to do it because the excuse to reread a book I love so much was great. Thank you so much. You came to me through your publicist through the Miami Book Fair, but I usually try to reach out personally just because I know it's like, I'm not just asking you for 90 minutes. I'm asking you for a week, you have to read this book again. And thank you for saying that. This is a super fun podcast to do. And I get that experience every week because I'm sometimes rereading books, but often reading books I've never even heard of. It's such a fun format. And you know what else is so smart about what you've done? You know, of course, I like talking about my own book, but it's my book. There's an agenda there that's implicit. We know that. Everybody knows that. But everybody loves to talk about their favorites, their favorite movie, their favorite book. It's just such a pleasure to talk about somebody else's work and why it's great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the goal is to get people away from the stump speech. So let me ask you a question about how music works and magic, because this is really kind of the meat of what I wanted to get into with you, because I am a magic fan. And I would say I'm a in front of you. I'm not going to say I'm an amateur magician, but I'm like an uncle level magician. You know, I can do a few tricks for kids, right? So I've been a fan of magic for as long as I've been a fan of music. And I always intuited a connection between the two, but I was never really able to articulate it until I read your book, How Magicians Think. Did reading How Music Works for you give you like the opposite experience? Yeah, I'll tell you, and your listeners can relate to this maybe. When my publicist told me about the format and said, so what book do you want to do? I was really torn between a few. I ended up choosing How Music Works because I do think there's so much about it that we can dive into from many angles. And I've taken a lot of notes so that we can do that. But it just as easily could have been a book called How to See by David Sally, the artist, which is exactly how music works, but for visual arts, for painting. He's a painter. And he wrote a book on how to view art and what we see when we look at art and what we should think about when we are artists. And look, I'm the furthest thing from a visual artist, but I found this book fascinating. And another book, still yet another book I almost chose was Stephen King on writing, which is part 
writing manual, which I think every author needs to read. It's just such an honest, bare bones, meat and potatoes sort of account of writing and also part memoir. And I am very much turned on and fascinated by any time an artist reveals their craft and the inside talk and jargon and world of that craft. What shocks me is when anybody is surprised by that. Like it was really hard to sell my book initially, really hard. And the feedback I kept getting, and thank God I had the hard headedness to look at everybody giving me the same feedback and going, how come everybody's wrong? Is because everybody was saying to me, do we need an insider's look at magic? Is there really a market for that? And I'm going, how music works wasn't written for musicians. It's not written for the subset of recording artists trying to get an album deal. How music works is written for anybody who loves anything done at a great level and wants to hear about how an artist has made their way. So on those terms, how could we not want a book that does the same thing for magic? And eventually, of course, I found a great home with Workman Publishing and they got it. And my editor, John Miles, really understood what we were trying to do. But yeah, I was up against people going, don't you think this is just inside baseball? Why is it inside baseball? Why can't we talk about the inner life of a magician? It's not just demystifying music, it's demystifying how things at a high level are done. One of the things that I learned about magic that blew my mind, that is so obvious, but I never thought of, is that, of course, magicians practice all the time. I mean, you, from the description of your book, practice like a concert violinist. And that's how you get good, of course. Yeah. Take just the example you've given, practice, right? So many important insights in my craft come from outside my craft. So the way that I practice and the way that I think about practice comes from the music world, because in the music world, they have terms, actual terminology to define different kinds of practice. So they have mindful practice where you sit and you pretend, even though you're in the walls of your own apartment, you pretend that you're on that stage at Carnegie Hall and you play. And then we have experimental practice, which isn't as much practice as it is feeling around. How do you get into a move? How do you get out of a move? How do you get into a piece of music and out of that piece of music? And then you have sort of going over the rough parts where if you always have a problem at one part, you do that part and drill it. You drill down and drill it. And we have that in sleight of hand. And so, again, it's so foreign to me that anybody could question a book that demystifies magic when the best artists steal from other artists and we take techniques. I've highlighted so many things that were passages that I thought, hey, I know he's talking about music and performing a concert at CBGB's, but what I take from that is XYZ. Give me one of those. Let's talk about it. Let me open this up and jump in. While you're looking for that, so Steve Gertner, great sleight of hand, great magician. He introduced a trick as this composition is by X magician. The particular arrangement is my own. And I thought, of course, some tricks are repertoire. They're known. But the way that he accomplishes it is something that he came up with himself. And it's the same as if I did a piece by Bach. I didn't write it, but it's going to be unique to me. I'm playing it on the mandolin. Yes, Paul Gardner. And there are so many ways of thinking about magic in terms of music. You know, I described a recent trick. I published it for other magicians. And one of the things that I said was, I consider this an etude. It's not a concerto. It's not an opera. You know, there are big tricks and tricks that go on eight, nine, 10 minutes with 10 phases. But an etude is a little something to practice, something you could do at a coffee shop for somebody. It's small and pretty and 
So anyway, right here in the preface of the book, I highlighted a paragraph because I think it's a really great thing on page nine. This is David Byrne. He writes, early on, though, I realized that the same music played in a different context can not only change the way a listener perceives that music, but it can also cause the music itself to take on an entirely new meaning, depending on where you hear it in a concert hall or on the street or what the intention is, the same piece of music could either be an annoying intrusion, abrasive and assaulting, or you could find yourself dancing to it. How music works or doesn't work is determined not just by what it is in isolation, if such a condition can ever be said to exist, but in large part by what surrounds it, where you hear it, and when you hear it, how it's performed, how it's sold and distributed, how it's recorded, who performs it, whom you hear it with, and of course, finally, what it sounds like. These are the things that determine not only if a piece of music works, if it successfully achieves what it sets out to accomplish, but what it is. When I hear that, I just think the same thing is entirely true of magic. If you see Ricky Jay, when he was alive, perform a beautiful piece of card magic on a Broadway stage, you're seeing that trick and you're seeing him do that trick, but you're seeing oh so much more. First of all, you're seeing a piece that David Mamet, the heralded screenwriter and director, directed. You're seeing a piece of magic that cost you a lot of money because that was the first magic show to cost big bucks on Broadway for sleight of hand. You're seeing a guy you saw in movies and on television who has a great reputation. In other words, the framing of that card trick is a gold frame. It's regal. It's splendid. Now, you see a different rendition of that trick. It could be equally beautiful, but you're sitting at a diner at 2 a.m. and you're seeing a magician you've never heard of, and that takes on a different meaning. I think context is critical in a magic trick. People say to me a lot in these interviews, what's the best trick you've ever seen? What's the best trick you do? And it's really an unanswerable question because there is no best trick. There's only the perfect trick for the perfect situation. So if I was in that studio that I'm looking at that you have behind you, the perfect trick in that room is not the perfect trick is if you were in my studio here with me, because in your studio, I see some computer equipment. I see guitars on the wall. I would do a trick in which your sign card ended up inside your guitar. But that's not a perfect trick in my apartment because I don't have guitars here. I'd have to bring one in. It would feel forced. So I'm always looking for the context-specific way to make magic meaningful. Make it meaningful for people in the room, in that moment, specific to them. That's amazing. And I think what you're getting at and what this book was really getting at is that the underlying art that we as performers and as people who do media and people who write, the underlying art that we practice is storytelling. We're trying to tell people a story in the medium that we are masters in. It's funny. It's an interesting book, right? Because it's so dense that it's almost hard to talk about the overarching idea of the book. And I feel like this was sort of the one sentence description of your book too, was like getting inside how mastery works. Their phrases and how music works that I live by. Like when you collaborate, you try to change as little as possible. And the recording studio should be used as an instrument. Did the stuff about the recording studio, did that resonate for you? Was there like a magic equivalent of that? Yeah, it very much resonated to me. And on two levels, because I'm a magician, but now I'm also an author and I've published some books. And the way the publishing industry works, stripping it of the magic part, the way writers work is the same thing. So for anybody who hasn't read the book, what he's talking about here is 
how the recording process, and he still records largely in studios, but it has gone down to very close to zero. So before you had to give bands hundreds of thousands of dollars to get studio time because that was the only place that you could get really good equipment. But now a lot of artists can record anywhere with a minimal investment in equipment. And that's made the ability to put out music not only cheap, but not necessary to go through a middleman. You don't need necessarily a mainstream publisher. You can tour and release music and make jingles and do whatever it is you want to do sort of directly. And that's what's happening in the writing world. And that's what's happening in the magic world as well. You know, a lot of great magicians are finding that they can build an audience virtually and they don't need promoters and agents and everybody else. Wow. That's an interesting thing in music that has been going on for the last 20 years. The rise of the amateur which is the last chapter of how music works also. Here's a really great section of the book, Creation in Reverse. And he said, I had an extremely slow dawning insight about creation. That insight is that context largely determines what is written, painted, sculpted, sung, or performed. That doesn't sound like much of an insight, but it's actually the opposite of conventional wisdom, which maintains that creation emerges out of some interior emotion for an upwelling of passion or feeling, and that the creative urge will brook no accommodation, that it simply must find an outlet to be heard, read, or seen. What I took from that is that people think the same thing, particularly when magicians are asking me about my creative process in creating magic, is that they think it's just like comes to me in a dream and I wake up and I'm like, today I'll create a trick with a coffee mug. But actually, it's what Einstein referred to as combinatorial play that I find most interesting. It's the meshing of two things together. And that comes from living life fully. So for example, if I'm out walking, I recently saw a poster for a band actually, where you post the bills for a show. And it was one of these trompe l'oeil things where it looked to me like hanging in front of the poster was a brush, like an old tattered paintbrush, and that somebody had hung it there. And I like actually reached out to grab it, and I realized it was just a very cleverly done shadow on an image. I was fooled by an optical illusion on the street. And seeing that there, in that light, in that context, gave me an idea for a trick. So if I'm not walking down the street in New York City, seeing that thing in the light of day with the shadow worked exactly that way, I'm not inspired by it. Or hearing a particular song in a place that gives me a feeling as I'm jiggling around pocket change that I just got for a drink that I just bought in that moment might give me an idea for a trick. But it's all these things coming together at one time that gives me the inspiration. So that's just a weird way of saying that, at least for me in my process, that inspiration strikes from on high. I think inspiration comes from down low. It creeps up in the weirdest moments between things when you would be hard pressed to even describe what you're doing. Like I was standing outside about to walk in and then I, you know, works like that. Yeah. What I say when people ask me where my inspiration comes from is I just quote Cole Porter, who was asked by a reporter the same question. And he said, my inspiration, it's usually a phone call from my agent. That is my inspiration to write a song. I think that the trick is to be ready to receive inspiration. So maybe the inspiration comes directly from a client, or maybe the inspiration comes from on high, or maybe the inspiration comes from an optical illusion paintbrush. I feel like this is a dirty word among those who would consider themselves high artists. But deadlines and money and real world motivations are totally valid motivators of creativity. I know some magicians who would say, like, I don't like to do shows because, you know, if you're performing for these lowly bar mitzvahs 
Well, any kind of a deadline that makes you go, I got to be done with this at this point is a catalyst for creativity. And I don't think that that should be shoved under the rug. I think that a lot of times deadlines create the best art. Symphonies are written on commission with a performance date in mind. So Beethoven doesn't just have however long he wants to write the Ninth Symphony. That thing's going to get performed and the music has to be on the stands by that time. You mentioned a magician who doesn't perform. Are there magicians who don't perform? Is a magician who doesn't perform a magician? That's, I guess, up to the eye of the beholder or how you wish to define it. But absolutely. This is where I hope my book is handy to people. There are people who their whole job is to create illusions for other magicians. And I don't think that makes them any less of a performer. They're just magic engineers. I would totally agree with that. This is probably the most controversial thing I've said on this podcast that I got the most mail for, and I'm just going to have you weigh in on it, which is that we were reading Art and Fear. This was a couple episodes ago in the Peter Ruby episode. We were reading a book called Art and Fear, and I said something to the effect of, I don't think art is art until you show it to someone. So if you're designing illusions, you're showing it to someone. You're not maybe showing it to an audience, but you're showing it to another human being. And I think that art is therapy when you're doing it just for yourself and you're the only one who ever sees it. First of all, I think that your theory really works well in magic. In magic, I think that's true because magic requires what Gombrich, the art critic, called the beholder share. If nobody is on the other side to see magic, then what you're doing is just sleight of hand. That isn't to say it's not good, but for there to be an elusive quality, a deceptive quality to it, somebody has to perceive it. But on the other hand, if I were to try, and this is what I do, don't take it personally, when I think about my own theories and ideas, I try to disprove them. I try to come up with something that doesn't work. I look at Vivian Mayer, the photographer. She was a babysitter her whole life. There's a great documentary about her. And it turned out that for her entire life, she was taking photographs of people, places, cities, wherever she worked as a babysitter. And they were some of the most extraordinary photos of the 20th century. Her work was art before she showed it to anybody, but maybe that only applies to the visual arts. Maybe performing arts do require an audience. Charles Ives is a composer who I don't think heard his work performed, certainly not all of it, certainly not his major works. And Emily Dickinson also comes to mind as a poet who wrote poetry that was only received posthumously. But I guess the distinction for me is I think it becomes art when someone else sees it. I don't think it was any less beautiful, but nobody would have ever known if nobody had seen it. The visual arts have such a wider scope of what the artist's aims are. I mean, I'm a big one for honoring an artist's aims. So, for example, in the visual arts, if you've got Mark Rothko or any of the action painters, including Jackson Pollock, their manifesto, their guideline was not to make art for you or for me or for it to hang on a wall and be beautiful for other people to see. The reason they were action expressionists is because To them, painting was in the moment. It was as they were doing it. That was the painting for them. The art was in the doing, which means that it was for themselves. We have to honor that. The same way a Judd Apatow movie, his aims are not the same as a Fellini aim for his films. And so I think that it's wrong to sort of look at a Judd Apatow gross-out comedy and go, you know, I just don't see the humanity in it, the self-expression. Well, that's not what he was after. He was trying to make us laugh. It's an escape. But you watch a Fellini film, you watch a Paul Thomas Anderson film, that's not a silly gut laugh escape type movie, right? We have to honor the artist's aims. So it's hard for me to know with a blanket statement, like it's not art until it's perceived by an audience, I guess, but now you're ignoring some artist's aims. 
That's a great point. And many listeners will be happy that you just schooled me on that one. And I think you're right. We started this podcast by saying that neither of us were really talking heads fans. And after reading this book and understanding David Burns aims and goals, we like his music more, which I think probably disproves what I had thought for several months. So I don't know if it disproves. I mean, I think it's so fun. I mean, I can tell you're the same kind of person, but there are people who will espouse some theory. They'll just drop a sentence out in the ether. And if you disagree with it, they somehow feel offended, but I'm just the opposite. I feel like I want to say something provocative and then together massage out how it's right or how it's wrong or where it lives in our consciousness. So yeah, I think that in magic, you are provably correct in your statement. I don't think magic is magic if you're practicing at home. And I said that in the book, I think magic requires an audience. If you don't have an audience, you're just practicing. I think that was an actual quote from my book. Yeah, I think you did say that. I circled it for sure. For me, a discussion and this podcast in particular is two people trying to learn something. And I welcome disagreement because it's respectful. And when you're talking to interesting people, they have interesting ideas that are not always obviously true or easily digestible. So that's one of the things I love about talking to the people on this podcast. This episode of Book Society with Joshua J was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. Joshua is just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the book fair in 2021. It's the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. So it's going to be really fun. You can join in person in Miami or you can join virtually. It's really, really cool. MiamiBookFair.com or at Miami Book Fair is all their socials. Also, Book Society Pod has a website. So if you want to know what I'm going to be doing at the Miami Book Fair, BookSocietyPod.com is the place to go. Check it out. You seem like the kind of person who's walking around thinking about magic all the time. And so that inspiration is there for you, or you're there for it, I should say. It's the lens through which I see the world. And that's not some just pretty elegant phrase. That's very, very true. I'm constantly walking around going, this glass is cool because you can see through it, but not perfectly. You could conceal something in the bottom, you know. Mm -hmm.